Welcome to the Modern Yoga Podcast. Here, I sit down with yoga teachers and I do my best to ask meaningful questions about who they are and what they do. My hope is that these conversations give you an inside look the ways in which they triumph, the ways in which they're human too. I want to know how to practice being awake in our modern day world. For today's podcast, we have Carol Horton and Annie Okerlin, and this is a joint podcast where I'm interviewing them both over Skype, and uh, they're from the States, and we're here to talk about a book that they've collaborated on called The Best Practices for Yoga with Veterans, and uh, to just make things more organized, uh, why don't you, Carol, first start by introducing yourself a little bit about how you got into even yoga mm -hmm. and uh, your involvement with, with writing this book. And then we'll, we'll go to you, Annie, right after that. Okay. Um, so I'm Carol Horton. I first started practicing yoga quite a long time ago, back in the mid-1990s. I was at the time a uh, professor of political science at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, just starting out in that field. And uh, I used to run and go to the gym, and I thought adding on a once-a-week yoga class for some stretching seemed like a good idea for some reason. Um, that was my only interest in it. I had no interest in mind-body practices. I had no interest in spirituality. I had no conception of yoga really beyond uh, some stretching as an add-on to my workout routine. But over time, it snowballed and grew. Um, in 2008, I ended up doing a uh, teacher training with Anna Forrest. And due to various sorts of changes in my professional life, soon after that, I started writing about yoga, really integrating my what had become passion for yoga with my background as a social scientist. And uh, I wrote a book, Yoga PhD, Integrating the Life of the Mind and the Wisdom of the Body. I also did a compilation of essays as an editor uh, with Roseanne Harvey as a co-editor called 21st Century Yoga, Culture, Politics, and Practice. Mm -hmm. Eventually, that writing connected me to the Yoga Service Council, where I'm now um, the vice president of the board, because I started going to the Yoga Service Council conferences at the Omega Institute uh, as press. I would write mm -hmm. reviews about the conference. So I did that for three years and then was asked to join the board. And one thing led to another, and I was eventually asked to be the editor on the second book in what's called our Yoga Service Best Practice Series, which is the Veterans book, which mm -hmm. we're here to talk about. So mm -hmm. I served as the editor on that book, and now I'm working on the next book in the series. It's an annual series which is best practices for yoga in the criminal justice system. Got it. I'm interested to hear about Yoga Service Council. This is the first time uh, hearing about it through our interaction. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the, the mission of this organization is? Um, what, what are you guys all about? Sure. So we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we work in partnership with the Omega Institute, which is a retreat center in upstate New York. And our mission is to increase the sustainability and effectiveness and impact of individuals and organizations who work to make yoga and mindfulness practices truly accessible to everybody. Mm 
So uh, we have a lot of organizations that um, do things like specialize in teaching yoga in prisons or in schools or to certain populations, such as veterans. We also have a lot of individuals who are interested in that kind of work and or doing it themselves. It's not just yoga teachers. We really try to be inclusive of anyone who thinks that yoga and mindfulness practices are a valuable social resource. So we're really all about moving those practices beyond the confines of the gym and the studio and into society, particularly major public health systems or social institutions or um, into communities where they just haven't had um, easy access to these practices. So that's what we're about. That's, that's so awesome. Uh, I really hope to see something like that in Canada. At least I'm not aware of something like that. Um, but I think that's so necessary in so many different parts of the world. Um, you guys are welcome to join the Yoga, Sur- Yoga Service <laughs> Council. We're not a U.S. exclusive. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, well, we'll definitely talk afterwards and how we, okay. we can connect all of that together. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, how about over to you, Annie? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're involved in as well. Sure. Thanks, Leo. Um, my name is Annie Okerlin, and I have been a practitioner of the yoga practice for, well, I started in 96, and I went to my first training, which was Bikram Yoga, um, in 99. And I came back to Tampa, Florida, where I was born and raised. I'd been away for many, many years, and started my first studio with $500 that my mom gave me. And uh, ended up finding a really rich community or a really rich soil to cultivate a community. And one of my first students ever was this giant guy, huge, about as wide as a normal doorframe, and um, huge legs. I'm generally about the size of one of his legs. And <laughs> turned out he was a Navy SEAL um, admiral. And he was based here. We have a, where McDill Air Force Base is the home of SOCOM and CENTCOM. So anything um, in the current theaters are happening, are all of that brain power is happening down the road from the yoga studio. And so he, we practiced daily together and his family. And I learned a little bit more about what was happening in, in his realm as a service member. And then about 10 years ago, he came to me and said, listen, I just came back from Walter Reed Army Medical Center, which at the time was in D.C., and he said, I met a young amputee, and just spending that time with him and his wife, I asked them, you know, how could I help support them? And the first thing that came out of the wife's mouth was, I want to go back to yoga. I've Mm -hmm. been by this bed for three months every day, watching what my husband is doing for his physical therapy and wishing that I was on my yoga mat. But not just for myself, more for being able to bring back how I feel in my body and bring that back to him. And so that started this expansion of what is now my heart's work and became our foundation, Exalted Warrior Foundation. I actually sold my studio uh, last summer. So after 17 years, I sold the studio to devote all of my time to my son and also um, Exalted Warrior. So since the past decade, we've been able to bring adaptive yoga and meditation to 
military hospitals and VA hospitals around the country. And really our, our very, very specific niche is traumatic injuries. So we work with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, um, my specialties, amputees. And then ultimately those are the very seen injuries. And then as we all know as yoga practitioners, yoga helps us self-regulate with our unseen injuries and issues. And so really that has become the overarching piece of my practice and what I try to help others. And that's a beautiful thing about this book is getting us all together was just a brain dump of information mm. of different practitioners who were, are already doing this work. Absolutely. Wow. That's a great story. If you could both elaborate a little bit more about your personal in, uh, intentions for why you decide to collaborate on this in this book, like why is it so personal to you and, and working with veterans uh, as opposed to any other demographic of society? Well, Annie, you might want to speak to that first and I could speak okay. more about the book in general. Okay. Um, I have worked with Omega Institute for about six years now. I was one of the early faculty asked to come on and, and support the creation of what's called the Veterans Trauma and Treatment Conference. And it became this ginormous brain gathering of people doing the work of military service members wanting to find out more about the veterans themselves needing support. And just as a gathering, as almost a convention. Um, and so when the call for this book came out, um, I was contacted to come in and I met with 29 other incredible practitioners with Carol, with the staff from the Yoga Service Council. And it was probably, it was the culmination of a, of a decade of hard charging, I think, honestly, to use a, a military term. I felt like I had been running across the desert by myself for so long, knowing there was water somewhere. And sometimes it was a mirage and sometimes it wasn't and keeping my practice going to support my self-care element. And then I walked into this room of 30 other people who felt the same way. It was extraordinary. And Carol and everybody created this environment where we all felt completely secure to share everything that we've, every mistake that we've made, and I've made a gazillion, every sort of frustration and necessity for further learning and expansion and creating community, it all came together in this one spot. And I think I can speak for several of the different groups that I was in, like how on earth were they going to get all of this information from these 30 brains into a small book? And Carol did it. So I, I think that she gets the absolute golden star, the golden ohm, whatever she wants to award because it was extraordinary just being mm. part of it and then taking all of our information the way she did and, and put it all together and in, in respecting all of our experiences and desires. I mean, the idea that other people want to do this work is, is one of the most bolstering things and then supporting the, com the community of, of veterans and their families. And the quote that always comes to me in these moments is one person with PTS basically ripples to a community of 40 people. Mm. That's a lot. 
beyond just their own family unit, beyond the grocery store, beyond. And when we start looking at that expansion and how far reaching that goes outward and downward into the cultivation of peace in our time, that one just boggles my mind. And so that's why I feel very strongly that this book is, is amazing for everybody, the veterans, the military on how to support their veterans, military hospitals, VA hospitals, and family members that want to support their person. So, mm. I mean, it's, it's human to human support, really, mm-hmm. I think. I really like the, the imagery that you created about uh, feeling isolated and walking along a desert on a path that, that seems like a very small niche and, and you're having to trailblaze a lot of the way. And then finding out that there's 29 others doing the same things coming from different directions. And then you all merging together in this one point uh, and finding out that there's actually a, a, a larger community than you thought that is all working on the same thing. Uh, how liberating and, mm-hmm. and amazing mm-hmm. that, that is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I also like the, the rippling effect of one person's uh, suffering and what they're experiencing has an effect on everybody. And that if everybody comes together in helping each other, then everybody is, is, is going through the healing process together. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Cool. Mm. Uh, and Carol, talk about your, your contribution and how you've brought all these people together. And what was that like? So, um, just to be clear, I, never did any work with yoga for veterans before this book, um, nor did I have any personal experience really with the military or veterans whatsoever. Um, So the skills I brought to this were very much my research and writing skills, which of course, having a background in academics, and then I didn't mention it, but I left academics because my husband and I couldn't get jobs in the same place and wanted to start a family. And then I spent about a decade doing applied social research in the not-for-profit sector. So I had done a lot of policy reports and program evaluations and that sort of thing. So the project of compiling, analyzing a lot of information, bringing it together, writing it up is something I'd just done many, 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 many times. Mm. (laughs) Um, So that's really what I brought to the table. Um, I was also not the person responsible for um, sort of creating the framework for this project. That predated my involvement with, again, what we're calling the Yoga Service Best Practice Series, because this is actually a series of meetings and then books that come out of the meetings. We call the meeting symposia. Um, happening annually. So the first book was Best Practices for Yoga in Schools, which came out in 2015. And uh, the editors of that book, uh, the current president of the Yoga Service Council, Jennifer Cohen Harper, and um, Tracy Childress, the co-editor, both of them were founding members of the Yoga Service Council. They're also both professional educators, um, and yoga teachers. So um, they thought of this idea. I, I think it, I, I haven't actually talked with them about it, but um, in detail, but I, I assume in part it comes out of their um, educational backgrounds um, and work in the not for profit sector 
uh, with yoga service. But they thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea if um, to create more of a field of practice? So, you know, all these people are just, particularly in the U.S., starting to do things like teach yoga in schools more and more, teach yoga to veterans, teach yoga in prison. It's happening. It's really increased a lot, particularly during the past five years or so. Um, seeing this happening, as, as we all know, yoga is an entirely unregulated field, at least in the United States. Um, and as we bring the practice into uh, institutions and two populations that are not paying to come to a studio and choosing as individuals to invest in this, but it becomes more a part of um, the kind of organization and culture they're a part of. So your kid, it's offered in school, your veteran, maybe it's offered in the VA. Uh, you know, it becomes even more important to really raise the quality of the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was that the best way to do this was to bring people who are really um, leaders in bringing yoga into a certain sector together so that they would form collaborative relationships, so that they would learn from each other, and that their wisdom and, and experience and knowledge could be integrated together, uh, backed up by research, um, and synthesized so that it would be accessible to more people interested in this work. So what um, we asked to do each time one of these um, symposium are put together is we, we asked them to come spend a week at the Omega Institute together and be uh, led through a series of intensive small group discussions on um, certain pre-selected topics, which go are, are creating the raw material for the book. So say you're talking about what's the right sort of way to approach a teaching curriculum for yoga um, with veterans. So that would be one topic. So um, people are divided up into groups to reflect on that and hash out what can they all agree on? It's not, this is the, you know, trademark this way, or this is my way, but this is, if we have to come to a level of um, broad agreement, what would that be? Um, what are the best practices? Mm-hmm. And if there are areas where we don't agree, how do we explain that? Why don't we agree? How do you hash it out? How can you explain the kind of choice set that might emerge um, that exists behind a disagreement? So, it is, um, I think, really a, a, an innovative way of trying to kind of co-create a body of um, knowledge that at the same time in the very process of creating it, that knowledge is helping to lay the foundation for a more cohesive sort of professionalized field because oh. people are learning from each other they're holding each other to account, they're supporting each other, and they're forming relationships that they can take beyond the process of being at the symposium and doing the book and continue out um, in the field. Mm -hmm. So that's really the idea. Yeah, it sounds like it's more than just a book. It it goes much further uh, 
beyond that, people learning about other projects that other people are doing, uh, getting some real life practical tools that they can take away and use in their in their own teaching or training. Uh, I mean, that's a, just a, an amazing concept and idea. And I mean, I could see this being applied to so many different areas and how it could really create a comprehensive, like awesome, awesome source of material and, and knowledge for, for, for yoga and anything else. When it comes to, to veterans, I, I don't have very much connection or idea of what, what their lives are like when they come back from war. Um, what are some things that they're dealing with in their life in, in communities and what were some of the findings that you found that yoga would, would help them with? So Annie, maybe you could speak to that from your own experience and then I could fill in um, anything from the book that might not have, you might not have, you know, it's more interesting when you can discuss it from your own personal <laughs> real life experience. Right. Yeah. I, rem I remember the one of the first times I went up to Walter Reed and I was working with an amputee. I, I was so nervous because I thought I know nothing of this guy's experience. I don't, I've never been in the military. Uh, you know, I just was having a little bit of a, um, a moment of doubt. Like, who am I? How can I support this person? And we were having a chat and I finally was, I was saying, you know, well, how are your arms today? You know, he's a leg amputee. And I said, well, what have you, what's your physical therapy routine? Oh, and I do this and I lift that and I'm, you know, working on my prosthetics and then, you know, and I do that for about six hours every day. And, and I'm trying to, in my head, kind of go through the list of, well, where do I, where do I, where can I work with this person? Where can I match? A what's the connection? And I was speaking to him and I finally said something about, well, you know, what's, what's your day like when you leave the hospital? He's like, oh, well, my wife and two kids are living, we're living in uh, the Malone house, which is sort of a dormitory style um, or like a hotel style facility that was on the campus at the time. And I said, oh, how old are your kids? And we ended up engaging as parents first. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, wait, this is a human and this is his experience. And he wants to be strong, not to necessarily go back to serve with his unit, which was a big deal. He did want to go back. Every single person I've worked with has always said, I want to go back to my unit. I feel like I let them down for not being there. But he realized, okay, that job is done now. I need to be a great dad. And it, to me, it was so powerful because I think my son was about two when I first started going there. And he had a, a two-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, he said, I really would like to try to find something that we can all do together that is exciting and fun, but then also gives everybody some quiet time. He's like, my wife is amazing and doesn't get a break ever. <laughs> and this awareness that the closeness of the family unit was so close they were all living in one room and he said that you know once the kids had gone to bed there was this point where he felt really delicate about intimacy and not just sexual intimacy but just the intimacy of he felt so changed and so um challenged to be whole, even though he was an amputee, 
but that was coming out more, not necessarily in the physicality, but in how he felt about himself, and which really ultimately meant that he was very defensive in his engagements with his child, his children, and his wife. And so one of the things that we did, which was a really great experience for all of us, was we did partner yoga. Mm. The kids, somebody took the kids, and he and his wife came in, and we just did, We they I had them sitting back to back, and he did a forward fold, and she got a back bend out of it, and we stayed for several moments, and then he did... She did the forward fold and they giggled about the fact that she was a lot more flexible than he was. And so there was laughing and she was in the, in the forward fold posture and he was in the back bend. And this little smile kind of started to creep up on the corners of his mouth. And I said, you, are you guys okay? And she actually started to cry and said, this is the closest we've been since he's been home. And I sort of realized very quickly in this work, let it unfold. As we all know, let it unfold. Mm-hmm. Let the story unfold. I don't need to know the why. I'm the, I'm the space holder to allow whatever needs to unfold, unfold. And she said, you know, it really worries me. She was looking at me at this point. She said, it worries me at night to fall asleep before he does because I'm afraid I'm going to kick his residual limb while I'm sleeping. I'm a kicker. And so she sleeps way on one side of the bed. And he's like, well, I'm afraid I'm going to have a, a nightmare or a panic attack in the middle of the night and like kick her or reach out and like hit her on accident, of course. So they realized, wow, this is a way for us to be intimate and connected. And it's not, there's no pressure to it. And so I realized very quickly that yoga took the goal. There was no goal orientation so in a physical therapy setting, in a hospital setting or something like that, there's no goal orientation. Nothing has to be met to be there. And that was one of those beautiful lessons that, you know, nothing does need to change. We're okay right this moment. We're all whole right this moment and in this present time. Um, and I think that that then trickles down into the physicality of, you know, working with someone who maybe is a burn patient and the gentle stretching of a yoga practice is incredible for their skin because when contractures, the tightening of the skin happens, if there's a little more flexibility in their body and in their skin, they're able to have less damage from the contracture. Things like that started, I started learning those kinds of things. Breath, of course, we know is, is the balance of the central nervous system. So even if my guys don't have ability um, or the ability to move of their own accord, but they have the ability to breathe themselves, they can, do, they can practice yoga. Mm-hmm. They can be mindful. They can notice their breath or feel their breath on their nose. I've never met anybody that can't feel their nose. So maybe they can't communicate that they can or can't, but it's, it's, it's such a baseline experience in our lives that the idea of maybe someone who's a polytrauma patient, a multiple injury state in one patient, they can, as they inhale, they can, if you put your hand on their chest and say, inhale into my hand, they can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you can put your hand, their hand there so they can feel it. And it begins this element that really anything goes for the yoga practice for them. So, Wow. 
That's incredible to hear stories like that and what, what yoga has done for, for these people. Do you notice that there's a lot of common patterns of, of recovery for, for these veterans, to, regardless of, of the type of injury or conditions that they're working with? I think there is a general, I mean, each of us are so different in the conditioning that has brought us to eat to this moment. So the life lessons and things like that. But I think there's there when the human experience has been traumatized, there are certain pieces that exhibit themselves on a regular basis. So for example, a really, really major one is in a yogic setting or in a yoga class setting, they won't close their eyes. So I always start a yoga class by saying, this is a secure space. This is where that door goes. This is what's outside that window. My eyes will stay open the entire time. And if through the practice you feel at any point that it may be more comfortable to rest your eyes closed, please do. Mm -hmm. But if that's not happening for you today, no worries. So by at least creating an environment of security and welcoming of, hey, maybe you want to keep your eyes open and I'm not, you know, not saying to not do that or to do that, whatever you need to do, that's okay. So um, another big thing is you'll find that in, in resting at the end of practice, I never tell my students relax because they are so jacked into their sympathetic nervous system, their fight or flight, they were when they were deployed, they were during injury and their body's trying to re regroup and heal itself. So it's on alert the entire time, so is the mind. When people are stuck in this heightened, jacked up sense in their sympathetic nervous system, asking that to come down is very challenging. But again, we come back to the breath and we know as practitioners, the three of us, some days we're a little bit higher up in our sympathetic than maybe the day before. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was food, maybe it was experience, whatever. But when we settle in and we start our practice to the end of our practice, we get this, we feel the reset. We feel the back into the ground, into the earth, into our stillness. And witnessing someone else's experience of finding a, the come down or the gentle release down, that's extraordinary to see and then giving them the tools because they are they are the ones doing the work it's so empowering to them to know that they don't have to rely on a med or you know the bottle of jack daniels or the weed to go to sleep which is a lot of the self-medicating that we see with a lot of our our patients and, and community at large mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so well, it's great that they have a tool that they can access anytime that is holistic and natural and know that there's a pathway forward um, and, and a community to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it grows for them and then they, beget, they begin to get more interested in it because it felt great or it worked or their hamstrings aren't cranky so their lower back's not cranky and now their neck isn't cranky or ultimately, hey, I fell asleep for three hours last night on my own and and that giving someone the ability to sleep again because they now have the tools to do it ooh mm. that's that's huge yeah. that's where great healing happens yeah life changing for you carol what were some of the best practices that came out of this book 
if you were to summarize it, some of the things that you didn't think were were actually the case are are, are like some amazing findings that, that came out of your work? Hmm. Well, I think um, the commonality of um, the range of experiences that were discussed was, was really profound for me. So Annie is working with um, amputees, a very particular um, part of the veteran community, and I know I was really struck in writing the book how um, insistent particularly the veterans were uh, to not be um, assumed to all have experienced trauma or um, to be damaged in, in any way, um, but there's such a range of um, outcomes and experiences from people who um, are the sort of people Annie's working with to people who feel that, um, you know, they, they came out of the service and are able-bodied and, and did not experience clinical trauma, but yet there is also a common appreciation of yoga, I think, for the reasons that Annie pointed to, the ability that is the same thing that I think those of us who have no military experience um, and love yoga also experience, that ability to, though she had made that sound kind of, you know, sort of <laughs> land in um, a more grounded, peaceful, centered state to access your interior resources for healing and growth that you didn't necessarily know were just there waiting to be activated. I, I think I felt such a connection between my own experience and people who, um, as a group, uh, I felt initially coming in, I, I didn't have any sense of personal connection with uh, veterans, seeing both the diversity in that community the way that there's different ways of benefiting from yoga within that community, and then also how I myself, um, how much I could connect with their experience was was um, really uplifting for me. Mm -hmm. As a yoga teacher who who may come across your book and and want to learn about veterans or working with anyone that has uh, trauma. Um, what were what what are some maybe three or four tangible things that I could incorporate right away into my my teaching that would uh, make yoga more accessible to to someone like like themselves or anyone with trauma? So um, we we do have a whole section um, in the book on trauma informed yoga and um, both the theory of that, uh, which I think is so useful for any yoga teacher to know. Um, and for those people who aren't familiar with just that background, I'll just speak to that really briefly. Um, trauma informed yoga comes out of a particular way of understanding trauma, um, which is that trauma is, uh, an event that's experienced as a threat to your basic survival and sense of integrity and meaning and that you're not able to adequately um, protect yourself from. So there's an overwhelm. Um, so it could be an acute event like a car crash or being in a hurricane. It could be ongoing, um, you know, abusive situations, um, being in a war zone. 
Um, and the rather than thinking of it as a memory that's sort of locked into your brain that you can't get rid of, that you might need to talk through or something like that, purely and simple, trauma is understood as a whole body, whole mind-body um, response so that um, the, the physiological component is incredibly important. So uh, we've all heard stories, I'm sure, of, you know, the returning um, warrior with PTSD who hears a car backfire and all of a sudden he or she feels like back in the war zone. And um, it's, uh, it's not just the memory uh, in terms of the narrative in the brain, it's the whole nervous system, as Annie was talking about, is, is um, in a jacked up state. And so um, yoga is, the trauma-informed yoga is coming at the experience of trauma in a called neurosequential way. So the idea is first one learns how to start to become more comfortable in one's own body by learning skills like working with the breath, working with feeling grounded, working with being oriented in space, working with starting to feel how you feel, just the sensation of the body, proprioception skills, where you are in space, interoception skills, how you feel the sensation of the body inside. That's a huge thing. And I think, again, somebody like me, the reason yoga started becoming more and more and more valuable for me was without knowing it, I was developing all sorts of skills and getting more insight into my own mm, kind of deeper psyche. So someone has uh, trauma that it becomes incredibly difficult to feel at home in your own body. And so first establishing that sense of safety by having these practices and also a safe uh, classroom space and teaching practices that establish safety, predictably, predictability, and control, all things that are lost in that overwhelmed experience of a traumatic event or events, mm-hmm. that creates the conditions then where it's possible to start experiencing your own emotions um, without having them becoming overwhelming and something that triggers a highly reactive or dissociative response. Again, something I could certainly very much relate to in my own experience, even though I've never had uh, what I would call a clinical level of trauma. Um, And then when you're able to be more at home with your body, more able to notice when you're starting to uh, have that kind of uh, reactive response physiologically and emotionally, have tools to uh, move in the other direction, hopefully self-regulate, calm, ground, access that more peaceful interior state. Then you can also start working on um, complementary theories like like therapies, like a talk therapy um, approach, if you like, or other things that help one to re-narrate your experience, work through the memories. Um, So it's a way of understanding trauma in which working with and through the body becomes of fundamental importance and it allows you to kind of scaffold up to working with the cognitive mind, that kind of rational analytic part of our brains that, you know, uses words and concepts and all that kind of stuff in a much more um, effective um, and integrated way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When it comes to teaching and and being a student of, of classes like trauma-informed yoga or yoga for veterans, 
What does that look like in terms of what's being taught in the classroom? How is that different from, uh, let's say, a vinyasa class or a hatha class? Okay, so um, one would be much more cognizant of um, creating an environment in which in every way the student experiences a sense of safety, a sense of predictability, and a sense of being able to control what they are doing. Okay, so coming into the room thinking about what sort of, um, how will I configure um, the mats in space? Um, often in a trauma-informed yoga class, it's recommended that um, students can see the door, but they don't have their backs to the door. Mm. There's an exit. So the teacher might be in front of the door. Sometimes a horseshoe shape is recommended um, so that people don't have a sense of being anyone in back of them. Um, speaking about veterans, one of um, the suggestions was some, if there's a closet or something, people might want to come in and check spaces in there so they know what's in the room. Then, as Annie was saying, when she teaches, she says, you know, my eyes are open. The teacher is creating a sense of, I'm going to be more vigilant about the environment so you can know this is a safe, secured environment. You can start to relax, thinking about uh, going through steps of figuring out what sort of lighting works best. Should you or should you not use music? Um, there was a lot of discussion about that, um, what you would consider and why. Um, then in terms of the class, typical practice in a trauma-informed yoga class, which would be different from, say, a vinyasa class, is the teacher will practice with the student, stay on his or her mat uh, most of the time so that there's a sense of doing with. There's a very um, strong move towards trying to create a sense of relationship and rapport rather than hierarchy and also predictably of movement around the, the, the classroom. So the teacher, say you might want to go, everyone's in a warrior two and facing a certain direction. So you, the teacher might need to leave her mat to go to that side. And rather than just wandering around the classroom, it'd be a very deliberate, now I'm going to go to this part of the room so that you can see me as we do this. Um, so there's a lot of predictability. Um, another example would be, say, um, if you hold a pose in the class, giving students a sense that we'll hold this now for five, four, mm. three, two, what? So there's a countdown. So there's some, this is only going to last so long. And then building up that sense of this is predictable. I can make a choice whether or not to stay in this pose, but I know how long it's going to be and where it's going to end. Similarly, invitational language is very much stressed. Um, even something as simple as um, sit down and close your eyes, which you might not think twice about in a studio class. As Annie said, she never would tell us her students to close their eyes, and this would be typical in any trauma-informed class. Closing the eyes may not feel safe. So it should always be a choice, an invitation. If you uh, choose, you could close your eyes. If that's not comfortable, you might let your gaze be soft and, and just look gently towards the ground, something mm. like that. Mm. Sounds yeah. like everything that's that's done in these types of classes, including the environment, is incredibly intentional. And there's reasons for why you do what you do. Very much so. If I can add a little bit onto that, mm -hmm. um, I think one of the important things that Carol spoke of in two, two things. One is 
the idea of noticing that they may be reactive in a moment and then that opposite of being able to be responsive. I think we can all agree that some days standing on one foot is easier than others. And so, you know, that doing balance work, especially even with my particular population holding on to the chair, that can still be a challenge to the practice and to the system. But the idea of getting that ability to step back enough to notice, wow, I'm, I'm kind of freaking out in my head. And, and then using that language of, okay, notice if you're being reactive or responsive. You know, welcome. I always talk about welcoming the wiggle and whatever. Um, and then the other piece was the idea of choice. If there has been, say, some type of sexual trauma, maybe choice had their choice was taken. And so the idea of, of even something as simple as when I have a studio class of veterans, I'll say, as everybody, I stand by the front door of the room and I'll say, where do you feel most comfortable in the room? And then they go make they get to go to the mat that's lean, you know the short end of the mat is against the wall and they pick what spot they want to be in and so the, this invitation that they do have choice and they can manage the information as it comes in gracefully or responsibly versus reactively that can be a huge step towards self-realization empowerment and creating a sense of comfort in one's own skin again um, that's extraordinary, mm-hmm. extraordinary for someone. Mm. I've only recently been informed about trauma-informed styles of teaching yoga. And to be very honest, the, the way in which I've been taught and the way which I've been teaching is very different than what you are uh, both both explaining what trauma-informed yoga is. For example, uh, I very rarely consider how the the room is set up. A lot of people have their backs to students behind them, or I'm in charge of what music's being played, how loud it is, what kind of music, uh, the lighting. I'm always moving around the room in different places. There's times Mm -hmm. where I I may give some touch. I'm very directional and and action-oriented. And... Uh, I haven't really put that much consideration on what kinds of people are showing up. And as you've said, Carol, although <clears throat> although you and I may not have experienced like what we would be considered uh, like clinical trauma, I think a lot of us uh, have had some type of experience that have been uh, traumatic on, on some spectrum. So mm-hmm. there may even be people that have... Uh, that are veterans or people that have uh, had trauma like a car accident and whatnot coming to a, a typical yoga class. Would you say that these practices are important to be uh, now integrated more and more into public yoga classes like the ones that I'm describing? Uh, personally, yes. I mean, I, I, I don't feel that there's any one right way when it comes to teaching yoga. However, I do feel that anyone who has a serious yoga practice or wants to learn about in depth could really benefit from, from learning trauma informed yoga. Um, I found personally, as I said, the, you know, basic understanding of kind of the neurophysiology of the whole thing extremely informative um, in terms of understanding my own experience better. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you understand your own experience better. You have new insight in how to teach others. 
Um, also, I think that the emphasis on choice and greater awareness of just the different sorts of ways in which um, people can experience um, things that are taken for granted in a typical class. A touch is, of course, a big one. So um, I also never thought about uh, these issues until I was exposed to this whole method. Um, I was trained in a way where there were very... um, um, strong, let's say, hands-on assists. Um, and I loved it. So I just was like, great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, touch can be um, a violation of someone's mm-hmm. sense of safety. It can be very triggering. It could be re-traumatizing. And um, having an awareness of just how powerful it is and how important it is for people to, the student, be, to be able to consent to um, something as intimate as a touch is, is I think, really critical. And understanding that more and having more facility for it, I think, will enable uh, teachers to work with touch as a healing tool much more intentionally and um, effectively. And it will allow students to, um, by exercising their choice and, and awareness, have the practice be more consistently healing and empowering for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is um, a great set of tools to, um, to ground oneself in. And then depending on who you are and who you're teaching and so on and so forth to integrate it in more or less. Um, But I do think it's well worth assuming that in any class, there will probably be some people who have experienced sexual abuse or, um, you know, some sort of traumatic incident. Um, it, it's quite common, and I, and I agree with you, Leo, there's sort of a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, it's not like only these quote-unquote special populations <laughs> that have, I think it's, you know, that's the human condition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, of trauma, and, and um, some is much more acute and um, sort of easily triggered than others, but um, I'd say the average person certainly has um, experiences and things that we carry with us that make it very, very easy for us to relate to and understand what's brought into focus in a trauma-informed yoga training. Mm-hmm. Andy, I want to hear from you as well, but before we do so, I, I'm, I'm running super low on my power on my laptop, so I'm just going to plug it in real quick. Okay. All right. Um, any thoughts you want to add to that, Annie? Yeah, it's it's one of those pieces. I think um, Carol stated it all really beautifully that we never know what's coming into the room. Um, I had a, an Ashtangi come through the studio many years ago who said, we were talking about something and I said, so are we, do you teach headstand? And he was like, are you crazy? <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, if I had uh, an x-ray machine in the doorway that spat out what your cervical spine looked like, then maybe if your cervical <laughs> spine was good, I would do it. And yeah. I was like, 
oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've taken that with me through the years and thought, okay, now I want the cervical spine x-ray. And then if our emotions had a readout, you know, what, what, is, what do I need to be mindful of with each person? And, and from someone who kind of learned all of this along the way and through reading books and, and a lot of the hands-on pieces of all of this, by trial and error, I realized that this isn't information to be, oh my gosh, I can't do anything in a yoga class. Mm -hmm. It's information to have in the background. And if anything, really practice the awareness of all of this in your own practice. Because that's a huge, the self-care piece in working with challenging populations is so important. And so as teachers, we, we practice what we are learning ourselves. And so this idea of being gentle and open, open and conscientious of what the experience may be for someone else is also how we are need to be as well with ourselves. So I think it is really important in looking in the room, around the room and creating this I call it orienting. Just orient yourself to what's happening in the room. Keep your eyes open so you can notice if someone's having, if someone starts hyperventilating or their eyes get a little bit wider or you see them start to clench their jaw or their hands get tight, someone's having a reaction. And we know this, but when you're in the midst of a yoga class with all different types of people, it begins to feel a little bit like a circus sometimes. You know, you've got the plates are spinning over here and the jugglers are over there and the animals are doing this and it gets really intense. But by having your practice and settling in and being like, okay, this is what's happening in the room, you can speak to that. Mm-hmm. If you see a couple people getting anxious or stressed out, come back to the breath. You know, and, and, and that's where I, to go back a little bit into that vinyasa practice, I think it's great. I think if you can move people, that's amazing. But over the years, and especially we have to remember with this very specific population that I work with, either no injury at all, maybe it's an unseen injury, versus the seen injuries, everybody wants to feel strong in their body. Yeah. But the piece that I've noticed over the years is that we're blessed, even with traumatic injury. We know how to move our body, but we don't know how to rest. And that is the piece where I think yoga takes, takes this expression of finding the physicality helps us get into the body, release tension, move blood, increase circulation, the feel-good, juicy stuff. But then it also allows a percentage of the population that can't rest until they're physically exhausted it, it creates that line of trajectory of, ooh, now I can rest. Mm. So I, that's a big question people ask me. Well, what kind of practice do you do? I'm like, well, I, we, we do yoga. <laughs> we move and sometimes it's more dynamic and sometimes we do. Actually, uh, Carol, you'll love it. I do a lot of abs. And I got mm. that from Anna. Like, woo, mm-hmm. crank those abs out. <laughs> warms the body. It gets out to all the appendages and everything. And then the spine's ready to roll. Then the spine's ready to move. And if you don't have legs, your core strength is the most important thing you've got because you have to be able to maintain that balance on your prosthetics. So, you know, it's, it's about welcoming each person where they are in their body and how that feels. Mm. Yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned 
how having more knowledge doesn't necessarily mean uh, more confusion or or not knowing what to teach anymore because now, for example, headstand is out of the question or this type of pose is out of the question because uh, that's that's how I've sometimes integrated the information that, oh, like, what do I do now? Like, everything's just blown out of the park for me. I can't teach the way I'm used to teaching. Um but I think over the time, it's, it's one, helpful to hear what you've said, that it could just be useful information and inform you uh, how, to, how to respond when someone does have uh, a, a, a way of, of doing things in the room that I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, before I move on to, to a slightly different area, which is about community that I want to ask you both about, is there anything else that uh, you want to share in terms of your work with veterans? Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that um, I hope is not too particular to the U.S. because I'm afraid I don't know the Canadian situation well enough to speak on it, but um, I think one of the big issues that we have is that there's a big divide between military culture and civilian culture in the U.S. because since the Vietnam War, we moved to an all-volunteer army. And um, when people come back from the service, it can be very challenging for them to reintegrate into civilian life um, because there's a sense of estrangement from the culture. Um, and I certainly felt that from the other side a bit coming in to work on the project because I felt like, hmm, I don't really understand this world. Um, and I found a lot of connection and commonality. So I think that the yoga practice has um, an important role to play in helping to bridge that divide between military culture and civilian culture in the States where I think it's widely acknowledged that there's become a, a big sense of separation there um, and that that works both um, on the individual level and all the ways we talked about be able to feel more present and connected and connected with others and so on. But I also think kind of segueing into talking about community that, um, you know, yoga classes can also be set up in ways that help to create more of a sense of community there, more or less. And just as the, the best practices book was trying to create a, more of a community of people who are interested in this work and doing this kind of teaching and even people who aren't yoga teachers, but who would like to connect to this work and support it, um, that I think connecting um, deeper with ourselves, but also connecting with each other and our communities, and our society, um, and feeling a sense of... Um, yeah, just um, comfort um, across what may seem like an unbridgeable, you know, cultural social division starting to negotiate that more, starting to be able to connect more with others is, is, is very healing and mm. very needed at this time. Mm. So I see that as an important role of this book as well. Mm. I didn't actually read this, but I heard this from somewhere that it was written in a book that a lot of people that were in war and were in communities with other uh, comrades, when they were actually in battle, they didn't experience any uh, anxiety or, or trauma necessarily there. But it was only until they came back that they started to feel the symptoms of it. And that was 
because of the lack of community and they were no longer together as one one tribe when they were away uh, fighting in war. Coming back, that's when they, they experienced a lot of, a lot of uh, these conditions. Um, is there is there some truth in that? Is it the lack of community and uh, the trouble of integrating back into a regular life that's that's creating a lot of these 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 issues? I think so. I think when we look at it, sort of on the the psychological, if there has been challenge, even if there isn't injury, the challenge and that you got out and you're home now. You, you were supported by people who are on your right and your left, your front and your back, and they've got you. You're mm-hmm. part of a team. It's greater than the self. And then you're home. And more often than not, I've had people say, oh, life is easier in theater, in, in war. Life is easier over there because I knew my job. Everybody had their job. Everybody did their job. Doesn't mean it was all peachy perfect and everybody got along, but everybody knew their mission and they were able to get it done here there's an element that that it, it they're home they're estranged from as carol said estranged from their community estranged from their brotherhood and things are harder things are more challenging and it begins this cycle of they try to reach out it's unsuccessful boom they go back to isolation And that is a very challenging psychological step to continue to keep making. We've all had it in a bad breakup, for example. Like, I I don't know if I'm going to do this again. And we we can experience that on many different levels. And I've always felt that whether you're going to teach in a hospital, a a VFW, which is like a veterans-based community center here in the States, a yoga studio, you're you're creating new community. And um, I think that's one of the things that's in the book is the idea of ask the studio owner if you can get an hour of time during the week to cultivate a veterans class. Mm. Because then not only is the veteran meeting other veterans in the community, the veteran is stepping out into a new community. And I've always felt that yoga studios are community centers, Ultimately, Um, I was lucky enough when I um, teach other yoga teachers how to work in a military setting, I've trained a lot of Canadians and they were actually sent by their their, uh, commanding officers. So they were Canadian Army. They were sent down to do these trainings because they've been watching the United States go, wow, okay, we need to be proactive and support our community from within. So I don't know a lot about the Canadian Army and, and military service in general, but um, I know that you guys have been proactive in sending teachers down to get further training on how to support currently um, active duty military in Canada. So I, I think that's amazing. Mm. That's really great. That's good to hear that that we're we're involved in some way. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some essential tools to successfully build community uh, for myself as, as a yoga teacher or for owners uh, of, of community centers, as you say, uh, yoga studios that are community centers? I'll speak to the yoga studio owner first, um, as I was one at one stage. Mm-hmm. Um, part of our practice is seva, this idea of selfless service. And there's hours in a yoga studio that aren't full of classes. 
there are places that, for example, we had a community adaptive yoga class for veterans and it would be 9.30 to 10.30 in the morning and the VA bust the patients in from the hospital. And what was great was hospital patients would then meet community patients that were community veterans that were out of the, out of the hospital setting, living in the community. And it just created this wonderful experience. This, my students would get excited and bake all sorts of cookies and so and pies and, oh, my gosh, actually, wait, <laughs> wait, sweet. Um, and so it was actually a good reason to say, like, it was a good motivation for, okay, we've got to do abs because there's a pecan pie that's <laughs> super, super sweet. And we're going to drink a ton of coffee and talk after class. And so the idea also of getting out of the hospital getting out of the quote-unquote clinical setting for someone who's been there three months, six months, 18 months to three years at some points, getting out of the norm experience is so, it's empowering. For someone with a brain injury, the reintegration of doing something day-to-day is so important Mm -hmm. because then they have a successful time or they learn something or they talk to someone new. It sounds simple to us, but just stepping out of that comfort zone enough to engage in a conversation with someone you don't know or that isn't part of your healthcare team, that's a big deal for someone, for a patient that's working on stuff or any, maybe a a veteran that's been homebound for eight months because they were terrified to leave the house. And then trying this first step and having an experience of getting back into their body and back with their brothers and sisters from the military community in a new place. I mean, there's so many, so many rich pieces there. As a yoga teacher, it's, again, it's just community. It's creating that um, new environment, and it's even getting us out of our, our comfort zone. You know, I think as yoga teachers, we get used to the people that come to our class only and, you know, our certain time and whatever we do. And, and this just creates more of an awareness of, how to be human mm. with everyone else's human condition, mm-hmm. ultimately. Carol, any thoughts on, on building community? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my broadest thought is that yoga teachers need to find ways to more actively teach that yoga is more than asana. Because I know that, um, you know, I was never a studio owner, but in years of going as a student to studio classes, I found it a wonderful experience, but a very individual experience. You know, I would come in, it'd be quiet, which was fine. I would just, you know, enter into a quiet space. I would do this asana practice, and then everyone would zip out. And there was really not um, any opportunity to talk with anybody. Um, And I was fine with that because I got so much out of it. However, it didn't build a community. Um, When I was involved in yoga with things like the Yoga Service Council, where there's other projects that are connected in with... um, the core asana practice, um, then it's become a lot easier because then there are things that you're doing together um, that need cooperation. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if if um, 
you know, to do this book. Um, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of organizational work. There's, um, but I start to think of the interpersonal relationships, the whole practice as a sort of karma yoga. And so it has broadened out my conception of um, what, what yoga is um, to have the opportunity to engage um, with people whose central practice is an asana practice, but because they're doing other things with it, maybe trying to figure out together how to, you know, um, do some sort of seva project in their community, or um, it could be something as simple as, you know, organizing some sort of get together where people go around and get to know each other. But the point is that the community building itself and the interpersonal relationships can be seen as sort of your yoga practice in action mm -hmm. in this way. So I'm interested in say, you know, yoga and activism and how um, we might take some of these tools for self-regulation and self-awareness that we're talking about and, and use them to discuss challenging political topics with people who don't agree with us and see that as a kind of a yoga practice mm -hmm. um, because you are mm -hmm. using the skills that you've honed in your mat, but you're, you're taking it into arena where you're engaging with other people. Mm -hmm. So I guess I kind of feel that based on my own experience, if yoga stays being about teaching asana and learning asana and that's it, the nature of that practice is, at least for me, um, in and of itself, a very interior practice that's brought me deeper mm -hmm. into myself. It's given me the tools to then connect with others differently, but um, the class in itself doesn't have the space for that. So I feel like other things have to be um, seen as valuable as um, participating in that gives you a chance to actively integrate your experience on the mat with connecting with others in, in different ways around different sorts of common interests or projects or simply the project is community building. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. the class itself was never that about that for me. It's not a criticism of it. It's just, I just experienced them as, as um, yeah, as kind of different aspects of a more broadly conceived yoga practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that now having taught for six years and and have a little bit more experience in, in my own practice that the asana is becoming less and less important and observing that there is a lot of isolation inside of the yoga class that very few mm -hmm. students, although they see each other every day, don't actually know each other's names or are afraid to talk to one another and are likely going through similar experiences in their life or could at least uh, empathize and, and understand where someone else is, is in their life. And I'm looking for ways in which I can be a part of a community or build a community, especially in the, in, in the larger studios that I'm teaching at. Actually, all, the only studios I'm teaching at are, are larger ones now. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just the situation that I'm in right now. And uh, I'm finding it very difficult on my own to be able to cre create this sense of community. And, and I guess I'm kind of feeling like what you're feeling, what you felt, Annie, when, when you were trying to build your, your endeavor in, in spreading 
uh, yoga to veterans, uh, feeling like I'm, I'm just charging along, uh, but not really knowing what, what the end goal is or, or where can I really aspire to. If if either of you had let's say unlimited funds in, in an ideal <laughs> world, and like you were to start a yoga studio again, or or um, wanting to create the vision that you have for what yoga could be in in the coming years, like what is something that we could all look forward to or work towards? Wow, that's a great question, <laughs> Carol. You looked like you were about to go. Um. Well. You know, I guess in my experience, again, um, well, there's a question of, is it best to um, try to create community around the people who would show up to do a certain method of yoga, because you all love that particular method? That's been the assumption, mm -hmm. I think, the standing yeah. assumption. Or is it better to create connections among yoga practitioners who share certain passions that their yoga can help them further? Now, just speaking for myself, I've, I've been involved in both. <laughs> and the second has been a lot more fruitful for me. Because basically I found, you know, when I was really deeping more community built on a shared love of method... Um, I didn't necessarily have that much in common with these people otherwise. So, I mean, it's nice in a way because I can see how much I have in common with people I don't have anything in common with. We both love this mm -hmm. practice. But, you know, I want to talk about politics and they want to talk about baking or who knows what. I mean, mm -hmm. we just don't necessarily share the same interests um, in life more broadly. However, when I got into the Yoga Service Council um, and what I call socially engaged yoga and organized around that, I found it a lot more satisfying. So um, in Chicago, I helped co-found a group called the Socially Engaged Yoga Network, which now recently has been connected um, via other similar networks in other places to the Yoga Service Council, just sort of as an affiliate, and we're trying to help spread the idea. But the idea there was that all the people who are interested in things like, you know, yoga and political activism, yo teaching yoga in low-income schools, um, bringing yoga into community health centers, those people get together. It's basically the Yoga Service Council idea. Um, those people get together along with, you know, social workers and school teachers and people who want to bring that into their profession or, or organization or institution. And we learn from each other because we have the same sort of passions. We have the same vision of how we'd like to work with yoga off the mat. That for me has worked really well. And um, I felt much more a sense of being at home with kind of my whole self in the yoga world Whereas for a long time, I kind of felt like, hey, I'm super into yoga, but I'm this kind of misfit because I'm like super intellectual and I'm all into politics. And, you know, by and large, I'm with a lot of people who like don't want to read the newspaper because they think it is like negative energy and it brings them down. And it's like just no interest. Mm -hmm. right? So for me, that was always very kind of culturally alienating. It's like, 
they're nice people. I like them. We can connect in certain ways. But something I'm really passionate about, by and large, was just of zero interest to most of the people I was meeting in yoga. So when I got into more of these niche, um, then I started connecting with people I have a lot more in common with. And it's just been a lot more fruitful. So I would say, to me, that's a more workable model. And I see similar things with, say, like the kirtan world. You know, Mm -hmm. there's people who are really into the the musicians and the people who love to sing and dance and sort of have this devotional practice. They get together regularly and they have a certain sort of community and so on that I participated in. And I love it, but I, I wouldn't be as driven to do that regularly as the socially engaged stuff. That's just not who I am as much. Um, So I guess I feel like, again, when you're kind of thinking more broadly than asana and thinking about how do you, you integrate what you are getting out of your yoga practice most deeply into the rest of your life, that we have different passions. And it also kind of connects to that sort of... mm, more classic understanding of yoga of like Raja yoga is more the inner path of meditation and, and consciousness expansion and karma yoga is the path of social action and engagement and bhakti yoga is the path of devotion and jnana yoga is the path of study and, you know, kind of really delving deep into yoga philosophy and that some people are just more naturally drawn to one or two of those paths than others. And, if we had, even if it's a small group, I feel like if the people who are really into studying yoga philosophy kind of found each other and did like, you know, studying groups or book clubs or reading circles, mm-hmm. like they would develop a sense of community. And the person who, you know, um, is really into anatomy or something like that, and they want to deepen their study of that, they'll be better off connecting with those people so they can they can deepen their their knowledge and connect with people who are passionate about what they're passionate about. I mean, when people start talking about rotator cuffs, like I just like my brain turns off. I don't, <laughs> I just, I'm so bad at that stuff, you know, yeah. I know it's important, but I, I kind of feel like, um, yeah, you can't yoga connects to everything in life and you no one's equally good at everything and nobody's equally passionate about everything. So I've basically, found my niche by sort of cross-cutting the different studios and methods and so on and connecting on the socially engaged yoga. That's mm. what's worked for me. Mm, mm, I really like that. Um, Annie, what, what are your thoughts being also uh, a, a past studio owner? <laughs> I, we loved doing, I, I was, I'm a movie fan and sometimes I think it's more for the popcorn and the possible Twizzler that would pass by. But um, I think like, we would do movie nights and we had a couple, so we would do movies, um, a lot of, there's a lot of documentaries out now on, you know, staying in the whole realm of veterans, but, you know, documentaries on Afghanistan, documentaries on special units in Iraq, and and then there's lots of different elements within there. Book Club was quite successful in our space as well, and, you know, we had a sutra study crew. Um, I, that's actually one of my little geeky things that I like to do. I like to sit and I have a teacher and I study sutra. It's a very personal thing for me right now, but I would love to be able to sit with a, several people and talk about sutras. And um, I think I might be inspired now to go see if I can get a group together. Um, 
but I, I feel that just like Carol said, there's ways um, to cultivate what it, it's, it's be the change that you want to see. And I think right now the, I've watched my, my social media feeds. I, I have a, I have, I feel like I'm on a um, pontoon boat and one foot's in the yogi social media feed and the other one's in the military social media feed. And it's a really big gap sometimes Mm -hmm. between the two. Um, So I'm in the splits quite a lot, it feels like. And I sort of try to dance between the two with the same focus that my yoga practice would give me to try to understand better where the vehemence comes from on one side and the passivity maybe comes on the other side. And I see it on both sides, the vehemence of, of, of very outspoken yogis and the passivity of people who don't want to see more war because they've already seen it. Um, it. It's a very interesting piece. And I think right now is one of the most incredible times in our culture to sort of to really sit and meditate on what is it that I personally can do and then take that to your yoga studio. Say, hey, I'd like an hour on a Saturday afternoon or uh, if you're a, you know, I I remember when I was, when my son was small, I I would go to a lot of um, mom and baby yoga and, you know, that tribe of women we're still friends 12 years down the road. We met in prenatal and it was, who else can you call at three o'clock in the morning when you think, you know, you're, excuse my, my languaging here, but when you think your breast just fell off at two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, who do you think, who can you call except someone else who's, who maybe thinks their breast fell off? Uh-huh. And, and I think there's that shared experience, but it also, there all, there were women, but we were different to all different sort of backgrounds and socioeconomic experiences and but we we created a, a tribe and um I think so many people especially in big cities you leave your the, the the cocoon of your home you walk with your head down you move quickly or you get in the cocoon of your car and you drive to the garage and you park and you go up into the studio and you stay on the cocoon of your yoga mat and then you maybe nod or wink and say hi to somebody and then you go to the bathroom and you leave and you cocoon yourself all the way back to the big cocoon and so we have a great little coffee shop near our near the studio and and you know the local veterans community they'll go on bike rides from around the studio area and then we meet up at the coffee shop so if I'm not on the bike ride I may meet them at the coffee shop and it just it's these little they seem really innocuous but they're huge to people who haven't had who've lost community or have a sense of loss mm-hmm. and there we all can join each other in that in that human experience of loss, because we've all had it in some way, shape, or form. But then we create this new tribe at the coffee shop. Even if it's just a 10-minute conversation, That's those are very powerful. Those leave beautiful trails for us to follow in later hours and days and maybe lead us back to the coffee shop to have another conversation. So I, I think there's a lot. I, I love the idea of the studio as a community center. And it, it's an hour is not a lot to ask for on quiet space at a yoga studio. I Mm. I think it's a great, great thing to ask. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for these very simple reminders of what I can personally do in building a community. It doesn't really necessarily take 
uh, a big vision or needing to change the world to, to, to have community. It could just be a very simple thing, which makes it a lot more uh, accessible and, and applicable to my, to my life. Mm. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I want to round up the podcast and give both of you the opportunity to share any last words that you have, uh, any um, suggestions or recommendations to people who are listening, and, and also where we can find either of you if, if they want to contact you or learn more about what you guys do, attend your trainings. Um, I, I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, the book, uh, Best Practices for Veterans, is just an extraordinary amalgamation of, of the 10 years that I've been working in the military specifically and the eight years prior to that of, of being a yoga teacher. Um, I'm excessively proud of it in the sense that the people that I met that poured their brain power into it as well. And then the way Carol edited it and presented it um, to the world at large is, is just wonderful. Um, it's been an amazing honor to, to be part of, of what she created um, in the final packaging of the book. Um, the piece that I always like to remind other yoga teachers or anyone who's interested in working maybe out of the, the norm or out of the box, so to speak, is, is the, the remembrance that we come to it as empathetic human beings. And it's this, what gets us into the mess sometimes is our fear. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes us forget. And really our yoga practice is reminding us to remember that we're okay. And that's the gift, I think, of, of our practice to others is we're humans meeting humans. And um, I've always felt very strongly about that. And it's a wonderful thing to remember, too, when in doubt of the magnitude of a situation or the magnitude of a, of a population that we want to work with or the magnitude of what feels like our lives are sometimes when we come back to the simplicity and the breath and the reality that we're human and you know, maybe we were ungraceful or maybe we are graceful. Either way, we can we can manage it. Um, my information is all on Exalted Warrior, E-X-A-L-T-E-D Warrior.com. Um, my contact, my email, um, and there's lots of trainings there and what we're doing. We're also on social media. Um, and thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, Leah. Absolutely. And, and all of the links that she mentioned, I'll have on the podcast notes. So you can, you can go directly from there. Thank you. How about yourself, Carol? Okay. So, um, I have my own personal website, which is all yoga stuff. Um, Carol Horton, PhD.com. And, you can learn about my books there, and I have a lot of links to articles and blog posts. I also do some yoga teacher training workshops. Um, so all that info is there. Uh, in terms of the Yoga Service Council, we, of course, have a website as well. It's yogaservicecouncil.org. And uh, we've kind of been in an expansion mode lately, so we have a lot of cool stuff going on. There's the book series I've mentioned the school's book, now the vet's book. 
uh, coming out this fall will be Best Practices for Yoga in the Criminal Justice System. Then in 2018, we'll have the next book on the series focusing on yoga to help survivors of sexual trauma and violence. Um, We also have a new webinar series um, starting up. Uh, It is now advertised. There's a web page up. And um, that will be, I believe, on the last Tuesday of every month. The first uh, one is going to be Sue Jones, who's the founder of a nonprofit called Yoga Hope, and it's going to be on the use of touch and trauma-informed yoga. Uh, Highly recommend that. She has a very uh, in-depth and distinctive approach to that super important and hot right now topic. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll also have Hala Khoury and Matthew Sanford coming up with webinars. Then we've got a series of, um, we call them community resource papers. So they're free, downloadable PDF files. They're sort of modeled after policy briefs, you know, um, but they're basically short, you know, around four page, four to six page papers um, on topics that we hope will be useful to people interested in yoga service. We have the Yoga Service Networks Initiative, um, which I talked about uh, briefly earlier. We'll have um, quarterly free informational calls with um, myself and other people who are leading these kind of um, community networks around the country. So anyone who wants to learn more or learn about other people's uh, initiatives can hop on those calls. There's a sign up on the webpage. Uh, And then we have um, an annual conference every May at the Omega Institute in New York. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, I believe it's the 19th to 21st this year. So all sorts of great workshops and um, opportunities to connect with and learn from other people. And so if if any of this kind of stuff that we've been talking about is of interest to you, I I, um, encourage people to go look at the website, look around, see what's on offer, consider becoming a member, um, an organizational or uh, individual member and support the work and become part of this community. And we do welcome Canadians. Nice. So uh, <laughs> we would love to have <laughs> you know, some sort of Canadian yoga service networks uh, spring up. And um, yeah, Omega is not a bad train, train ride from uh, Montreal in particular. So I know, I think you're in BC, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's far, I know. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's lots, there's more and more ways to connect with what we're doing. So, um, yeah, we would love to have more Canadians involved. Awesome. I will do my best to connect the, t- <laughs> the two, con- the two, can- the two countries as much as I can and, uh, bring everyone together. And of course, uh, everything that you mentioned, I'll, I'll do my best to put that on the show notes so that people can access it easily. Um, amazing hour and a half, uh, speaking to both of you and, and being, uh, enlightened with a lot of new information that I didn't have any any understanding of and now feel a lot more compassion towards. Um, so thank you for both of you for dedicating your time to, to this area of work. Uh, and I, it means a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much, Leo. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes and help us out by rating a review. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the future ones to come.